the free for all roundtable brought to you by lexus avon canada's newest lexus dealer in the maple auto mall near rutherford at highway 400 luxury is closer than you think round one so many things to talk about today let's step lively and here on the panel mark warner international trade lawyer laura babcock is with power group communications she's also host of the o show tim hudak former leader of the ontario conservatives now with the ontario real estate association let's begin with the top story which certainly is that ontario apparently is sitting on a massive surplus now the debate is on how to spend it let's start with a guy who's not only an economist but used to lead a party at queen's park and tim hudak the instinct amongst some would be well let's find something new to spend it on and the reverse <laughs> the reverse instinct amongst others would be let's not spend any more money let's pay down the debt what say you well you forgot number three john another automotive uh, plant might come along we need that cash right <laughs> okay Stellantis comes back for more. Um, yeah, look, this is um, uh, has been a, a longtime tactic of finance ministers of, of uh, liberal and conservative parties, where you underplay your revenues and you overplay your costs. At the end of the year, you come out ahead, and it's better to be out ahead than behind. But it has come to the point of ridiculousness in the last number of years, and this government's been particularly cautious on their finances. Look, I, I get this is a snapshot in time. The government says, but but clearly, they've got a lot more revenue coming in than they need. My, my number one in this, John, pay down some debt. We, we spent for good reason during COVID to keep our heads above water. Those bills are going to come due to my kids. So we got the cash now, pay down that debt. Uh, Mark Warner, I'll come to you. And my stance on this has sort of, I guess, been a split thing, which would be we have to establish whether we are underspending on necessary programs. And if we are, you know, spending the right amount on health and education, then yeah, let's pay down the debt. So I'm going to be much more wonkier than than Tim. I mean, okay. believe that. <laughs> um, so when I was in government, one of the things that I noticed, I think that I was a legal director of one of the ministries that I think only two of them that uh, Tim had been minister of, not when he was there, obviously. One of the things is there, there's an, a lot of issues in the Canadian the Ontario government has with sequencing of spending. And I can't tell from this story what, whether that's what's going on here, although the comments from the finance minister suggest that might be what's going on here. And we under, under the McGinty government, when we we'd end up with it's a lot of announcements that they make about things that they were spending um, that had really no realistic chance of getting spent within the within the annual budget time period so towards the end of that period we'd have a lot of underspending that they'd race around and try to find new programs to fund which of course never got done on time so we had to do that again the following year twice um so there's a lot of sequencing problems. And what I can't tell from this story is whether the $22.6 billion is that sequencing issue or whether it is, as Tim said, the miscalculation or a combination of both. But um, but I think that's something people should be aware of, that, that a lot of interest groups, when they look at these pockets of money, it's more fun to talk about how you could spend it than to sort of focus on whether whether it's that sequencing issue. Okay, so just to, to verify, this would be like me saying, look how much money I've got in the bank when I haven't paid any of my bills yet. Yeah, so you know, you're say so you're now so you're going to send money to let's say an auto an automaker based on a following set of conditions, and the conditions aren't met, and so money doesn't go out the door, but there's still money that you've allocated to give them that kind of thing, and it happens in a lot of programs. So it's just it's just part of its nature of how what the Ontario government spends money on. So people look at that, and it's an attractive spot of money, and they say, well, let's just use that for healthcare. I get that, um, but you got to make sure that that's not money that you've allocated to somewhere else, because in the following year you turn around and spend it and you know, 
you'll be studying around the healthcare that you promised it to and the other thing you promised it the year before. Okay. So you really got to get in the weeds. So at the risk of further wonkery, let me turn to Laura Babcock. And <laughs> Laura, the NDP is insisting the only reason you guys have so much money left over is because you're starving the health system. Well, listen, often these things are a little bit nuanced than any of the kind of extreme positions, right? Let's throw it all on debt or let's throw it all into services. And a lot of it is optics. And I don't want to get too wonky from a public relations point of view. But to Tim's point, it's a game. Governments want to show they're strongly fiscally responsible by saying, hey, look, we've managed this so well. Look at the money we've got. And then we see them do silly things like cancel stickers on license plates and spend a whole whack of it for an election, right? So there's always money available. It's always about priorities. What I would like to see is this government not add insult to injury. There are people hearing this announcement and while some might be, wow, look at them, they're good with this stuff, let's pay debt. Other people are sitting there going, well, if an apartment in Hamilton for two people is $2,100 a month or $2,300 a month and ODSB people only make a thousand, how on earth are people going to pay for their rent, pay for their groceries? We're in a real crisis here. So, you know, I, I want to take it out of the wonkery and into the reality of people who might be listening to this program thinking, so wait, my government with my money is sitting on that kind of a surplus and there are people in the streets in our cities who can't function. We need to put money into housing, highly deeply affordable housing and mental health right now. Staff in Marco Mendicino's office knew about the transfer of Paul Bernardo from a maximum security facility to medium uh, for about two months before they told him and apparently he only found out the day after. Uh, here's what former federal cabinet minister Lisa Raitt had to say about that on the morning brief. This is absolutely devastating. I actually tweeted out last night that this is a nightmare and I said it's a nightmare because your staff, when you are a cabinet minister, like your personal staff, they become your family, they become your friends and it's such an act of, I would say, betrayal that you didn't know and, and furthermore that you're allowed to go out and make the comments that you did on Twitter and in public that Marco Mendicino made in terms of being an incomprehensible and this is terrible kind of thing when the people he's closest to in Ottawa all knew about it. Mark Warner, what do you suspect was going on here? Was it to offer the minister plausible deniability? Yes, <laughs> I do believe that. I mean, I noticed particularly with the federal liberal governor, I was a bit surprised by Lisa Raitt's comments there, but what I've noticed with the um, federal liberal government, they, they're, they're offering a narrative of how government works that just completely um, at odds with my experience. I mean, you know, what I was paid for was, you know, what I guess the phrase that always came up was political acuity. And that is to make sure that um, things, the legal issues that could become headline issues were always brought to the attention now, uh, of the government. And the question then, who is the relevant decision maker? It was my job to make sure that key issues would get to the deputy minister if that was important, and he would decide whether to go to the minister or in some cases up to the secretary of cabinet or maybe to the chief of staff of the minister. The point is that there are multiple ways for issues that are clearly going to be headline issues, and this is clearly one, where you would want to make sure that that gets to the relevant decision maker. It's really hard to imagine that it would stop at a staff member. It's just, it's just not how government works. And I I you see this on over eight years now, repeatedly, file after file after file. They want to tell you that their their staff and senior civil servants uh, don't uh, give them information that has headline potential. That's just yeah. not how government works. Well, Laura Babcock, it also represents, I think, bad office management and bad politics. Because if something's about to blow up, you think you'd want to tell your boss about it. 
you know what? I don't believe this. I just, for the, all the reasons Mark cited, uh, you know, I, I've never seen this. I've never seen where the most explosive headlining issue that an office is dealing with, whether political or corporate, is kept from the key spokesperson on issues. And it's not his press secretary or whatever. It's going to be him, the minister, right? The buck stops with them. So the idea that for three months staff was sitting on this and looking at what his options were, give me a break. That's the kind of stuff in, in PR you flag. You flag early and often and say, here's how we're managing it. This is the process. This is when we think it might blow up. This is what the narrative is out there. This is how we think you should handle it. So the idea that he found out afterwards, I mean, the, the family, the lawyer for the family said, you know, if true. And I think we should all put a giant if true on this story. Okay, Tim Hudak, you've been a cabinet minister. Uh, would there be a, a lot of yelling in the office, do you think? I cannot imagine how furious I would be and and my butt would be on the line in the premier of the prime minister's office as as minister like this this is an incredible body blow to the credibility of a government already you know teetering over justice issues so I'm going to disagree with my colleagues here John I just think this is so crazy to imagine that, that it has to be true like there is no way that Marco Mendocino who I've known for a number of years I, I just I cannot believe he did not see this train coming the so I actually believe the tale that staff didn't tell him because there's no way any cabinet minister of any capability could blow this one. I'm incredulous over that. I think what happens, John, over time, and I've seen it happen to government after government, both stripes, over time, political staff get worse. They don't have the hunger. They don't have the drive to become more like bureaucrats, and they screw up. Whoever screwed up should be fired. Okay. I'm going to stick with you for a second, Tim Hudak, on this next topic because I was told that you were kind of hot about it, Uh, and that is a very, very uh, capable and affable fellow. Uh, Dr. Shamji is an MPP for the Liberals. Perhaps he's going to run for the leadership. He's pitching the idea of giving every employee a stat holiday that they can take any day of the year. Your thoughts? Yeah, I'm not mad. I'm just sort of mystified. Dr. Shamji was actually in, in our ARIA office uh, the other day talking about housing policy. A lot of respect for the man. Um, but look, I'll tell you about the zoology of a, of a leadership race, having won one and been, been part of others. There's at least three types of candidates. There's the front runner, a compelling choice. Number two is the compelling alternative, a very different alternative to the front runner who captures attention and imagination. Then there's the ideas guy. And the ideas guy just throws out things random to try to get attention that don't fit together and they never finish higher than third. You don't want to be the ideas guy. And this seems to me like something you just toss out there to get a headline mission accomplished, but does it show that you've got the chops to be leader? If you really want to go down this path, you do something even more bold, right? You strengthen the right to disconnect. You have some guaranteed right and a type of job to work from home. Like your leadership contest, you put out a vision, not this sort of one-off ad hockery that Dr. Shamji sadly produced. Yeah. It just seems like a silly idea, Mark Warner, because part of a stat holiday is that we're all in it together. So, you know, everybody's not working and the mail doesn't come, so the dog doesn't bark. Right, but we've chipped away at that over the years, too, for the stat holidays that already exist. Um, no, I agree with that. I agree with what you said. I agree with what Tim said. I mean, but I guess the precedence there is that there was a liberal premier who promised a additional stat holiday who had some success with it. Tim might remember that guy's name. I'm not sure I do. Um, so uh, so I suppose that's the precedent he's looking for. You know, people like uh, like, like, like like free things, and, and it's, it looks like you're doing something. And whether people get into the weeds to the extent that Tim was 
suggesting I'm not sure. I guess he's hoping people just hear holidays, that. Uh, but I agree. I, I like the idea of having events. That, I mean, I tweeted at someone last night, maybe as a joke, it was kind of perhaps a bit offensive, but I just said, I thought we already oh, had man. a common holiday. It was called Christmas, I thought. But anyway. All right. So unlike you to provoke a fight on uh, on the internet. Uh, Laura Babcock, the thing that comes to mind is, you know, the person who has to actually wear this is somebody's employer. Yeah, but I do like it, the weeds on this, actually. I like that the reason for this, of course, it's attention getting, but it also goes to the point that, what was it, you know, a, a third of Canadians might not be part of the current set holidays or, or not celebrate them, and why don't they have an option for some diversity? Are we a truly diverse nation? And if so, can people select this kind of floating stat holiday? They get one day a year to celebrate maybe something that's not on our official calendar that they believe in. I mean, it's one day. And I think, as we've talked a lot about, uh, employers are having to adapt a whole lot post-COVID, post-pandemic to what people find to be a balance of quality of life and a good career. So I don't think it should be rejected a whole cloth, but I do think that getting anywhere near Bonnie Crombie in this thing is going to be tough. I mean, she's got the momentum coming into this thing, and uh, I would expect that she'll have a pretty easy run. Thank you all. Great to have you. Tim Hudak, Mark Warner, Laura Babcock. Catch the Roundtable, round one at 745, round two at 845, weekday mornings on more in the morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.